Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. Coming at you from National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic 2020 in Minneapolis. And uh, our name says Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, but this is your Ruffed Grouse and Woodcock episode. Our featured guest today, Ben Jones, the president and CEO of the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. And um, as we were planning this episode, Ben, I asked, all right, we've got a total of four microphones, and obviously I'm going to take one because I'm a diehard grouse guy, and you're going to take the other. What other two fellows or gals from the uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever organization should grab those other two microphones? And... We have with us the Director of Government Affairs and our kind of our Southeast Regional Rep for Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, those four, am I missing anything? Okay. So we've got Jim Inglis and Andy Edwards. We got Government Affairs and we got the Southeast. How did these two guys get on this episode? We've got history, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you right now, it, it kind of feels like a Mexican standoff on who's going to go first. That's the way I feel. Who's breaking first? And that voice is Jim Inglis, uh, Director of Government Affairs, who has been on uh, one episode, the, the Potomac Fever episode <laughs> right. from about a year ago, when we were talking about, um, boy, what were we talking about? Farm Bill. Farm Just got signed. That's right, because it was right after the uh, 2018 Farm Bill got closed. So this is your second episode, and Andy Edwards, I feel like you've been on like 13 of them with me, but this is actually your debut. Yep. I, uh, we are very good friends. Uh, yeah. You're affectionately known as Wooly Mammoth <laughs> to me for yep. unknown reasons. No, no, because I, yep. I, I listened to a voicemail one time, and I thought uh, you said, this is Wooly Mammoth. <laughs> no, you, no, you <laughs> thought I right? said that I had been to a Wooly Mammoth concert. <laughs> But I, in fact, had been to a Willie Nelson concert. <laughs> you might have still been at the concert I by, might have by been. interpretation of yep. that. Yep. <laughs> All right, Ben, I cut you off. So we got Jim and Andy. Why are these yeah. guys here? You say you have history. Yeah, well, well, there is there is history there, and we've been very close friends for a long time. But I think maybe the interesting thing for the listeners is kind of a look into this culture that's out there and the the wildlife science mm -hmm. community. So the three of us crossed paths at various times and uh, when we were in graduate school at Mississippi State University and the University of Tennessee. And there's a really strong bond that forms with the guys and, and girls you're in grad school with. Mm -hmm. You live together. Jim and I live, live together for three years in Starkville, Mississippi. You study together. You work on each other's research projects. You help each other write your thesis and your dissertation. Mm -hmm. it, it's really a, a, a neat camaraderie. And, you know, I got to thinking about it, and I don't know that that's something that most hunters realize when they see a conservation director, policy director, the regional reps that came up through the wildlife science profession that, you know, we kind of got this, this close click, and it's really cool, not only because you've developed these great friendships, but it makes it really easy when you're looking to collaborate with another group when it's your buddy that's running the program right. and you know each other and you make that call and you know right it, it, yeah, it's just a real neat 
as we were talking, there were there were multiple people you could have. And Tim Corns, if we had a fifth mic, Tim was the next one on the list. Kent Kent Adams Kent, mm-hmm. yeah. um, was also in with Andy and I when we were at the That's University right. of Tennessee. He was working on a deer project. <laughs> Andy was working on uh, a bear project. I was working on ruffed grouse research. Huh. Jim and I crossed paths. We were both working on turkey research. So, yeah, there's this whole depth and breadth of, of stuff in there. So I figured we'd see what we could untangle. <laughs> <laughs> so you were working at Rough Grouse, right? At the University in of Tennessee, Tennessee I was. Well, which is natural. You ended up sure. at Rough Grouse Society. You threw out a couple things that confused me, though. And you were working at Bear I was. Project. I was. My research was in South Alabama uh, doing Bear Project. And... Uh, basically a natural history study down there go out and find as many as you can put a tag on them and a collar and see what they do it's like that uh, old comedian joke you know find a hibernating bear and wake it (laughs) you basically were doing that for science (laughs) pretty much much. (laughs) (laughs) and what were you studying jim so i was turkeys in south mississippi in the desoto national forest so um ben and i um, worked on a it was kind of a long-standing turkey research project and it was radio telemetry on turkeys and Hmm. just i mean you're spending like we spent three years together just focused on what we could figure out on turkeys and it had to do with prescribed fire and and uh, survival and reproduction is just you know you're just intense studying of an animal and figuring them out so i i I teased you know bear and turkeys and now you guys work for pheasants forever and quail forever the anomaly is actually Ben, right? I mean, uh, most of the time you st- – That's a really well, – That's a, a very true statement right there, Bob. Why don't you just open the door? Bob? <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to throw a lot of softballs to these guys and see if they can hit them. But it, so my, my perception, though, is that you – know, and my brother has a Ph.D. from Iowa in, in, in biology, and he studied uh, beetles. Right, mm-hmm. oh. and now he's the ecologist for the Shawamigan Nicolay National Forest wow. in, in Wisconsin. Mm. Right, it's not A to B necessarily. Like what you study doesn't end up being what you go to work for. It's where you're going to find a job. That's right. Ben is like crazy fortunate to have studied grouse and now has the highest rough grouse job in the land. Is that an accurate statement? You know, for to go from bear to quail forever is kind of more the more the norm to you study you know some species and then you find the job that's available for you well i would say that you know actually bob i started out rough grouse research in ohio on the appalachian uh, research project in ohio and virginia and if i had it my way i would have stayed in virginia and tried to do my graduate work there but they didn't have any openings so they probably weren't gonna have any openings for another 18 months to two years so it was like well i want to go to grad school well, this this thing sure. pops up in Mississippi, and there's a connection with a with a guy there in Virginia, and he said, "Well, you should go." So, packed up my stuff and went yeah. to Mississippi, and you know, meet this guy. I could have just just as easily been working on fish. I had applied for three different grad projects, right? Got the bear one, you know. So you take the opportunity absolutely. where you can, right? absolutely. There, yeah, because right. there are so there at times there's few opportunities out there to do research. On. And, and I'm and, and I'm not saying that um, to. Because I know the passion that you guys have for pheasants and quail, right? Mm-hmm. It, you ultimately ended up in what I perceive to be dream jobs for you. Absolutely. It's just it's sort of a circuitous route it is. It is. as opposed to A to B like Ben, <coughs> ben was able well, to do. Although you probably had some jumps in there that you didn't uh, – it wasn't a straight line walk for you either. The, 
the thing to, un to understand about the whole thing, and, and in grad school, you really, you have a specialized project. Uh, but you're, you're taking coursework, and you're learning about the whole scope of wildlife research. Jim and I, you know, I, I can remember a couple of the classes that vexed us in particular. But um, <laughs> Do you want to throw any professor's <laughs> names out? You're working on it. <laughs> 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 he just kept it. He's polished, it, right? You're working on a project, but you're taking courses in population dynamics and habitat ecology. And the other thing is you're helping everybody That's in right. that grad student office on their project. Mm. So when Jim and I were in Mississippi, we did a lot of quail work. Uh, we did our turkey work. We were engaged in deer projects. Um, I, I helped a guy do uh, surveys for beaver. There was a beaver hmm. project, uh, red cockaded woodpeckers. So we got, you know, you're exposed and ingrained in all these other things. Sure, you're focusing on your species of study, but you're learning the larger scope kind of through that. That And it really is a community of everybody helping each other on their hmm. projects. So you get to learn a whole bunch of stuff. How big is that community that, uh, that group of students you're going with through like, you know, these, these master's level, um, wildlife degrees with, I'm going to say, Jimmy, we, in our office in Starkville at Mississippi state, we had, there was 10 of us hmm. just yeah. in one office. And yeah. there were several were offices, <laughs> but I'd say 20, 20 to 30, you know, at one time that you would know, very well and there and there's overlap your, there spend you know, all your time with yeah they'll be there for two or three years at a time usually for a master's right. and then a phd is usually what three to five years depending on the the project right so you could be together for a long time you know yeah yeah and you cross paths i yes. assume as you progress throughout your career you, you guys end up being references for each other and or how you got where you're at you know yeah. for instance for me i'm not going to dive all the way in it but jim and i met because i thought i was tracking my bear in mississippi that i'd lost and had a mortality signal and it turns out i tracked a turkey of gems from 75 miles away <laughs> <laughs> and uh after a very long and hot day um we we met at his office because we it was a shorter distance to go to that ranger's office than it was the four miles back <laughs> through the woods to where the truck was and so huh. that's how we met and no you know we got acquainted a year and a half two years later um you know he's working for pheasants forever in ohio and um well no yeah the skip would be that on this wetland strip this is you know advance a year and a half there's a wetland strip got a grad class we're riding in a bus bouncing around and some dude brought his mandolin he's in the back of the back of the van just you know wearing it out and i'm like man i like this dude this guy's from mississippi state seems like a pretty cool cool guy we get to talking it's been playing in the back of the hmm. bus and then and he I, wasn't playing do -do 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 -do. he was not at that <laughs> point but we realized that we have jim in common and then it clicks to him lowing you're the dude that he you, that tracked his turkey, you know, and click. There it was. Ben and I were fast friends and, and then move forward to Jim getting a job with Pheasants Forever in Ohio, post it pre-HR, even having an HR department. Right. Um, this would have been 2002, late 2002. He posted the job for an Indiana biologist. Wow. And uh, Yeah, and I sent the resume to Ben to say, hey, you know anybody? Huh. He's like, well, yeah, I'll pass it around. And then. Andy and I connected, and he comes in, and then we worked to launch Quail Forever a couple of years later. Right. And, but the yeah. interesting thing on that, though, Andy's technician 
Who was your right. technician? Sarah Bales. Okay. From Sarah Glida now. Yep. Yep. Became our o- she was also rep. Yep. Oklahoma rep. Yep. yep. So th- she was his technician, and my technician was Theron Terhune from Tall Timbers. Oh, wow. He had just finished up. I can't remember if he was a junior or senior. And then he went on to, you know, get his Ph.D. in quail and very quail-focused. And, you know, so, again, it's, you know, we're all connected that way. Right. Yeah. It's like two degrees of uh, Kevin Bacon from right. wildlife biologist. <laughs> right. You don't need the six degrees. You just figure it, it out is. in a room in a couple of beers. <clears throat> yep. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> so, it, it, remind me, you said you started in 02, Andy? I started in, in February of 03. So oh, this, okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pardon me. So I got you by one month. You did. Yeah. So yep. you've been here 17 years. Tim Corn, Ron Leathers, Matt Morlock, and I all started on the same day. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then Jim, you've been. I think you've been here longer than I have, right? Yeah, 2001. So I yeah. uh, I was hired in February of 01, but I really didn't get started until July. But I did a couple of this uh, national meetings and and the like. And then I remember the day. You know, basically we we were living in this this old trailer falling down trailer you know the hot water heater fell through the floor and uh, ben and i were standing there <laughs> and we times. shook hands and he was headed to tennessee and i headed to ohio wow you know, so mm. and it all comes full circle huh? well, right? you know that jim what jim brought up just made me think it really is a, a passion and a labor of love when you're doing this work and during those years we were in grad school you're making like eight thousand dollars a year hmm. 750 bucks a month Seven jim months. and i lived in this bombed out trailer it was 125 dollars a month i mean it should have been torn down i bet it was after <laughs> we left it was but you're just digging in hmm. every day you're not making money you know when you get out you're not going to make big bucks but you're just in it man yeah. and it's yeah it, it's a passion that is common among all of us in this you field. know if you listen to Stephen Ranella's uh, mediator podcast mm-hmm. he talks about uh, you know the time he I think he spent one year at Lake Superior State up in my neck of the woods in the UP and uh, how he just fished and hunt mm-hmm. hunted the yeah. entire time and that's what yeah. he filled his freezer with and that's what they ate while he was going to school yep is that pretty true of uh, wildlife professionals Absolutely. where you're fishing hunting and that's what you're eating uh, yep. to because you, you don't have a lot of other cash coming in, so you, you're, you're closing the gaps with, uh, with what you gather outdoors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we, we would dine together, <laughs> yeah. you know, every night, too. Dine? And, <laughs> it's like wild game cook off when you're when you're, a week. when you're a ceo you have to use big words like yeah that was, and make it sound that, that wasn't the word i was envisioning but you know yeah we'd, we'd go to george's creek and catch crappies and then go back and fry them up you know yeah, that's or, what we did or you'd hit a, a good morning on the tennessee river with geese and we'd yep. eat a bunch of geese and i would go home every year as soon as the semester ended with a bunch of doe tags, and I'd come back with about four whitetails. Huh. So, absolutely, yeah. you do. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't necessarily about what was in your freezer. It was what was in the collective <laughs> it freezer. It was communal, man. It that's was. for sure. <laughs> well, I'm sure we're going we're gonna to go down memory lane a little bit more. But uh, uh, And before we get to rough grouse in Woodcock, Andy, talk to us a little bit. Uh, fill us in on what's going on in the southeast, Tennessee, sure. Kentucky. Absolutely. And give us a, a snapshot into Quail Forever in your, your I'd, region. I'd love to. So we um, a lot of great things going on in, in, the, in my region. Um, I've I've excited about the growth that's happened in the last couple of years with Quail Forever, but specifically in my region, Alabama has blown up. We went uh, two years ago, three years ago, we had uh, two chapters effectively, and we're at nine now. Wow! 
Yeah. Um, Including our friends at uh, Alabama Black Belt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brent and Pam are here. Yeah. And they're uh, on the show floor. They, we, we had an event down there. They hosted us. It's going on three years now, right? Yeah. They yeah. hosted us. We came down and uh, riding, riding a horse beside a guy and uh, said, hey, man, I'm Brent. He goes, hey, you know, and uh, I said, the Brent that I've been talking to um about starting a quail chapter absolutely i'm like this is gonna work out you know and so we can we we you know got everything firmed up then and got our chapter going and um that kind of was the start of the fire and yeah. we've started a lot of chapters in alabama a lot of great things are going on there good uh good passionate volunteers tennessee is is strong and continuing to grow with 11 chapters but we also have five um biologists on staff there <clears throat> we have our newest one. Uh, we have two biologists now in Kentucky in a shared position with a coordinator uh, with Kentucky and Tennessee. Have our first biologist on the ground in Mississippi. So uh, it's it's really going well. We're proud of the the successes that are happening there, and our chapters are just just doing great things. So, so I should have looked up this uh, saber metrics quail forever question. That's a baseball term for you guys. Saber metrics nice. is is analytics uh, related to baseball. But anyways. Um, uh, my my belief is that in the history of Quail Forever since 2005, you have probably started more chats. It's either you or Corin. Oh, he's way behind me. Okay. So, yeah. so Just, you have, you've started more Quail more Forever way, chapters. In more ways than one. Well, but there's I mean, no doubt yeah. about it, Woolly yeah. Mammoth. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you've probably started, I don't know, it's got to be uh, north of 50. It's over 50. Yeah. yeah I started, um, our goal was, was 15 the first year. I, start, I think I had 17. You know, Jim was in there too. We were yeah. we were hitting a lot of different things together, and um, fifteen the second year, I think ten the third year, and then it tapered down a little bit. But when when we started Quail Forever, you talked about circuitous routes. You know, we started Quail Forever. I was the only guy in the whole organization. We were about fifty people then. Mm-hmm. I was the only guy from the south. Yeah, I live. Uh, you know, I was able to move in two thousand six to my hometown. Yeah, live in my hometown, Tennessee, Pulaski, right? Tennessee. A few months later. I meet a girl I hadn't seen in 11 years, and four months after that, we were married. You know, <laughs> and that'll be 13 years coming up this Monday. So, congratulations! You know, who would have thought to go yeah. work for a, a ditch chicken club up in the north and to get to work <laughs> and move back home to Tennessee? So that just doesn't happen. They got a big giggle out of the gruff grouse. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and now you know we got a ton of of employees in the south in Absolutely. the quail range. Th- things have really ramped up in that regard. Yeah. Uh, all right. All right. So I'm going to turn the attention to Jim just for a moment. We made um, some pretty big news yesterday as we're recording this, the day after Valentine's Day, and Valentine's Day didn't have anything to do with the big news. <laughs> but uh, we sent a, a, a letter to uh, the USDA Secretary Purdue. What would that letter say, Jim? So we uh, sent that letter yesterday to see if we could extend the CRP sign-up, you know, um, a little bit longer. Um, as the listeners may know, the sign-up began in early December, and it's going to expire here uh, basically in two weeks, or the, the sign-up will end. And um, we just felt like we needed more time to um, that landowners and, and farmers and ranchers could could go in, get the information, and, and get signed up. Um, it's some of the other USDA programs have been extended so far, just because of the the timing of implementing the new 2018 Farm Bill. Um, you know, those rules need to be done. You know, there's a there's a public process to to do that. And um, you know, with the early December sign up, you know, we got into the holidays and, and, um, you know, there seems to be some, 
maybe some software issues with it with some mm-hmm. of the changes because there were a lot of changes in the farm bill on the crp program so we're just asking for a little bit more time and obviously from our perspective both from a pheasants and quail perspective you know the the bird numbers have dropped as the grassland acres the crp acres have dropped mm-hmm. over the last 10 years and there's it with the 2018 farm bill we went from 24 to 27 million acre cap and then with expirations there's when you start doing the the sabermetric crp math we're talking about 8 million acres of opportunity right now yeah and a few extra weeks is a big deal that's correct and um this this is also the first time there's been a general sign up in 4 years so, um, and the last time that we had a general sign up, um, it was a longer period, but again, it's not unprecedented to have extensions like this. And, and we think that a little bit more time will help get a few more acres in. So for the listeners, one of the things that I'm incredibly proud about the organization, and you, you heard us talking with Jim earlier, Jim is a biologist. He studied turkeys and, and, uh, you know, had, had, uh, all sorts of interactions growing up through through the biology and wildlife science, but he's now our, our director of government affairs. So what's that tell you? Tells you that our government policy work, our work in Washington D.C. Yep. is science based, and, and you're not unique in our in, on the team. Dave Thompson, mm-hmm. um, also biologist. Right. Right? I, I don't know. Does Bethany have what, what's Bethany's background? Uh, Bethany's more agriculture. Okay. so she of That's course right. she grew, grew up, up in Montana, but spent some time. I think she was out. In, yeah, she was um, more animal science and and the ag side. But I, yep. to me, from that a marketing ties it all together. Yeah, yeah. From perfect. a marketing and communications perspective, I love going to the media and, and telling our story that you know our work in D.C. and on policy is grounded in people that have science backgrounds. Yep. So. Uh, hopefully we get some good news related to that, uh, CRP signup. It's, it, it means a big deal or it is a big deal to not only pheasants and quail, but pollinators, monarch butterflies, water quality, uh, waterfowl, uh, rural economies, farmers, ranchers. Yeah. I mean, this, it's the crown jewel of, uh, America's conservation programs and a couple extra weeks to get those 8 million acres That's enrolled. Wonderful. It, it would be a. It'd be a very, very good thing. All right, without further ado, this is your Rough Grouse episode of On the Way. (laughs) Mr. Ben Jones, president and CEO of the Rough Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society. Give us the the elevator story of RGS. You know, you know, how'd you guys come to be, where you're based, what the mission is? Uh, You've done this a million times, I'm sure. What's what's the pitch? Um, the Rough Grouse Society was founded in 1961, so we'll have our 60th year anniversary next year. Mm. And it was founded by some gentlemen in Monterey, Virginia. Uh, Jimmy talked about working in, uh, in Virginia and the ACGRP, and you wouldn't think of Virginia necessarily as a grouse state, but in fact, in the Shenandoah Mountains, it, there are healthy grouse populations. Hmm. And what these guys, they were grouse hunters, they were conservationists, and they wanted to start this group to make sure that somebody was looking out for these habitats and for these birds. And um, I I found a a quote early in my days of rummaging through stuff when I first came to RGS, and it was from our first president, Bruce Richardson. And he said, uh, for all of us, it was a labor of love. 
And you know, it's like they had they had some foresight that there were going to be challenges, and mm. there should be this group that looks out for forest wildlife in the name of ruffed grouse. And that's how it was started six, nearly 60 years ago. And the tenets have always been sound science, basing forest management, wildlife management on sound science, and really focusing on that forest habitat and forest wildlife aspect. So that's been the tenet over the years. And then, um, yeah, interesting thing, a, a lot of grouse hunters, a wonderful day is a mixed bag when you can get mm -hmm. into some woodcock as right. well. That You know, they're almost synonymous with each other, right. grouse and woodcock. No doubt. <coughs> and seeing conservation challenges uh, ahead for woodcock in 2014, we formed the American Woodcock Society, much as y'all did with Quail Forever. Right. And uh, that enabled us to extend our geographic range and habitat impact into some areas that don't and never did have roughed grouse. So, um, yeah, 2014, we kicked off the American Woodcock Society, and um, here we are today, coming up on 60 years. And, and talk to us a little bit about your path, because you, you mentioned um, you went to the University of Tennessee mm -hmm. to study rough grouse. Yeah. That doesn't naturally add up to this youper. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll give you a quick run through. So, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I ended up going to Penn State, you know, as any any good country <laughs> kid does you go to your land-grant university right, in your yeah. state and plus Penn State had a fantastic forestry and wildlife school so that's what I did but I've always been an avid turkey hunter as well and there was this guy George Hurst in Mississippi that was writing these articles about uh, this fleet of grad students he had in Mississippi working on turkey projects so I just started calling the guy huh. and the day I graduated from Penn State I shipped out to southern Mississippi huh had never been to Mississippi, uh, but got down there. And when I walked in, you know, back to relationship with Jim, I walked into the grad student office and here's this guy from New York state. And I was like, you know, kindred spirit there, another Yankee. <laughs> <laughs> so I grabbed hold of him quick. He was uh -huh. like my lifeboat, <laughs> but I worked on Turkey research. And as I mentioned, the quail work and everything else mm -hmm. we did in Mississippi. Um, and then uh, on wrapping up that work was applying for jobs and seeing what was out there and, there was a rough grouse research project as part of the Appalachian Cooperative Grouse Research Project. It's a mouthful. Jimmy worked on the project in Ohio, but there were 12 study sites throughout from Ohio, western North Carolina, on up to Rhode Island, looking at eastern grouse populations. Yeah. And um, I, I really wasn't interested in doing the PhD thing. That that really wasn't it for me. And, and actually, in my interview, I might almost not have gotten the job because one of the uh, professors who ended up being on my, uh, uh, one of my advisors said, well, you know, why do you want to pursue your doctorate? <laughs> I was like, I really don't care about the doctorate. I want to work on this rough grouse huh. project and keep learning about forest management and wildlife. Um, so as a byproduct of that, I got a doctorate. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, so I made it halfway back home to the Northland sure. and uh, worked at, in Western North Carolina through the University of Tennessee for five years. And then from there, did make it all the way home to my home state of Pennsylvania, where I became Habitat Division Chief for our state wildlife agency. And I did that for 13 years before coming here. Huh. And, and, you know, I, I talk about, you know, going to Tennessee to study rough grouse and being a native of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan you know, you kind of become myopic to the fact that, well, you know, grouse, the epicenter is, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. And what I, what 
you guys, Rough Grouse has done a really good job, I'd say, in the last five years is pointing out like, hey, you know, there's there there are rough grouse in Appalachia. Oh, yeah. And there's opportunity here. But yeah. when you, it, like, this, you know, youper here, like, I didn't really know that yeah. until you guys started really putting that into your magazine. Or at least I noticed it more in your magazines and in and, and so, so there's a lot of there's a lot of habitat in that Tennessee corridor, isn't there? Right, and so it's elevational as you go down the Appalachians, where uh, rough grouse in Western North Carolina, where I worked, um, they're generally above 2,500, 3,000 feet, and my study site went up almost to 6,000 feet elevation, and you'd be up uh, on the high points up there, and it looked like Pennsylvania. Hmm. So that northern, you know, <coughs> grouse are a northern bird, as you mm-hmm. point out, and at high elevations in the south, then they can hang on. Right. And the really interesting thing, you know what rough grouse mean kind of culturally in the UP mm-hmm. and in Minnesota. They're culturally ingrained in the southern Appalachians, too, in an entirely different way. Really? And it's different in New England, too. Their kind of rough grouse hunting culture is different. Mm-hmm. And so I would have known that. Like, I definitely know, like, the New Hampshire, Maine, yeah. they hold it dear, too. And I, So I knew that. But like, tell me about the culture of how rough grouse fit into Appalachia. You know, there's a gentleman I met down there and he's still really active his name's monty seahorn and he kind of sums it up in my mind monty's about six three six four wiry (laughs) came up as a a forester worked in the woods every day had phenomenal bird dogs and his bird dog of choice was Brittany's. and just this stringy wiry forester in these Brittany's up and down these hills and i mean when i say hills yeah Mountains. These things are steep. You're you're clearing some <laughs> elevation, yeah. but uh, Monty kind of sums it up for me for the the hard scrabble, hardcore uh, Southern Appalachian mm-hmm. grouse hunter. Huh. It, I, if I'm remembering correctly, Gordon Gillian, right? He's the famed grouse researcher out of the Mille Lacs area in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And I, it, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm free basing here. Um, didn't he study whether like gray phase, red phase geographically um, had influence? Like if I, I thought there was a hypothesis that there were more red phases towards Appalachia and there were more gray phases in the Great Lakes. And that's sort of been debunked over the last couple of years. Is that accurate remembering of that data? Yeah, I'm not sure that it's been debunked. We, we didn't have any okay. gray phase grouse none where i worked and we caught hundreds of birds and never caught any gray face no birds. silverbacks in appalachia <laughs> huh? all the coppers and the yeah. oh boy all it, co- same thing with ohio and virginia they were all really yeah. so they're yeah i don't think you get into the gray phase as much until you have to get up into michigan even in new york huh i'm thinking that they were you know so what's what, what's the biological reason between the two I, I just assumed it was just a color variation but there's got to be some sort of species or not species difference but there's something there it makes a lot of sense if you take a two pictures of habitat yeah. winter winter habitat or late fall habitat in the up or minnesota and take a picture of appalachian habitat at the same time in the appalachians you've got oak leaves 
they're they're kind of fluffy we call them and, and actually grouse since that you don't have as much snow down there they mm. will roost down in these oak leaves mm. but if you think of the color of oak leaves on the ground they're rusty brown orangish mm -hmm. versus aspen and northern hardwood leaves on the ground they're kind of that mottled gray sure, sure. Mm -hmm. you, you can quickly make that connection of why birds <coughs> in the mountains are, are reddish but so uh, so i get the birds in the mountain but like you can shoot a double in northern minnesota and you'll have a red and a gray and the presumption is well that came out of the same brood wouldn't it or is that those two broods mix and it's just yeah you know? i don't know if any work's been done if you have different colors within a brood i would say you can just like in a you know a a litter of setters, you're going to have some tricolors. And right, right. Of course he would reference a setter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I mentioned Brittany's earlier. I needed to correct, redirect the ship here. We're talking about setters. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Well, it, it is fascinating to me. They just, they are, when you, when you think about upland birds and you think about colors, obviously you, you automatically think of the male ringneck pheasant, right? Roosters, all those colors. But you know, doing as much grouse hunting as I do, when you re you hold a rough grouse in your hand and you look at the tail feathers and the differences there and then the roughs. Mm. I, I, two years ago in, in um, the Schwamigan with my brother, there's probably a few more years than that, the rough on this bird that my, that, that my pup brought to hand, it was like flame orange. It oh, was cool. the most beautiful thing I've ever seen huh. in my life. And, it, you know, some of them, you know, these gray phases, they're just deep black roughs. And, you know, from the tail feathers to the roughs, I think that's something that's so underappreciated. <laughs> yep. And, you know, even you start thinking about sharp tails and prairie chickens. And, you know, it's easy to take for granted, you know, one is the same. But when you look at the details oh, yeah. of these birds, God, they're just good. Woodcock, too. When you, when you hold a woodcock in your hand and, and then you look at the cover that that oh, bird yeah. fell out of the sky, right? You, have, you ever, have you ever ran your dogs on woodcock in the spring mm -hmm. and they hold so tight, right? And you get a good pointer. And you, you, I, I've done this a ton of times. You snap, snap the photo. You're like, I know it's <laughs> and here then somewhere. You look, and then, you start and then, you, then you, after the, the bird flushes, does. you go and look for where that bird was. It's like the camouflage on a woodcock is some Unreal. of the best in the damn planet. Mm -hmm. One of the things to look out for, it, this is a color that I, I haven't even seen it reproduced, is that grayish blue. Oh. And a woodcock, if you hold them just the right way, they've yeah. got this yeah. mottled bluish color to them. Well, and, then that, and then the underwing is just orange almost, you know, at times, yeah. rusty. And the yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, all right, so I'm sorry. I got, I got cheeky about colors of woodcock and, and grouse here for a moment. A big part of the reason that you're here at National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, Ben, uh, the Rough Grouse Society is signed up as a presenting sponsor with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and with the Minnesota DNR for our brand new Public Lands Pavilion, which, you know, frankly, we're one day in and it's it's the rocking new place on yeah. the show floor. It is it is <clears throat> it is humming down there. And that's a big credit to you guys and the BHA and the energy you're bringing. First of all, thank you very much for being a partner and thank you that's a great opportunity well it, it demonstrates to to the upland world that uh we're all in this together right yep. bha pfqf rgs minnesota dnr 
you know, we, we are passionate Uplanders. We all have different logos on our, on our chests, but we happen to all be members of everybody's group, right? Yeah. Because, you know, you can hear it clearly that we're all uh, passionate um, upland hunters. So thank you for being a part of the Public Lands Pavilion. Tell us a little bit about um, public lands issues for your organization. What's, what's, uh, why is that a hot topic for RGS? Some of the things we'll talk about today, and we have a, we're have we doing the State of the Union for public lands. And as you mentioned, Howard is going to be there, of course. I will be there, as will Lantani and Whit Fosberg coming in from Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. And, um, you know, a, a lot of attention, especially through BHA, being given to keeping our public lands public mm-hmm. and some threats with um, – with administering those lands and there's been a groundswell of of support and interest through bha and and where rgs really dials in our hedgehog if you will our laser focus is ensuring that those public lands are managed appropriately and rough grouse really are a bellwether a flagship for healthy forests and um we've got a lot of forest health issues and just to summarize it generally our forests give or take a few years of 1900, the turn of the 20th century, most of the forests in the Midwest and East were completely overexploited and cut, cut to the ground. Hmm. And it's, it spurred the conservation movement as we know it. And today we see that those same forests grew back through conservation. And now we have large expanses of single aged forests that started growing back around 1900. Hmm. So in a lot of places, those forests, though conserved, lack diversity, especially in different ages of forest. So I think there'll be a lot of listeners here that are mixed bag hunters that, uh, you know, grouse hunt in Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, but there's also a lot of listeners that probably never have even seen a rough grouse. I'm thinking particularly our Quail Forever side of our organization that, you know, taking a trip to Minnesota is a hell of a long ways from Alabama, right? Right. right. So, you know, from a kind of a 100 but you'd be surprised honestly how many of them do it but yeah i know there's no doubt about it but in general you're right those hardcore bird hunters and dog folks they go north in september right but from a 100 level you know describe what rough grouse and then describe what woodcock habitat is to somebody that's never seen it the the name of the game is diversity so forests are dynamic systems they're always changing and we talk a lot about disturbance and um if you look at a land base because they're always changing and historically we would have had wind events fires would have burned across large landscapes beavers were active across the landscape and you had all these disturbances that uh, would create young forest those young forests would start growing back you'd have middle-aged forests you'd have older forests so when you look at grouse and woodcock habitat it's really defined by that diversity and we talk about age classes mm-hmm. it's, you know it's not a real sexy term but it really <laughs> it kind of sums it up you need different ages of forest in close proximity now a lot of, of attention gets paid to the young forest piece mm-hmm. that early successional habitat for grouse because as i mentioned a lot of that is lacking across the landscape but truly what grouse depend on if you had an entire landscape all of young forest mm-hmm. that wouldn't be good for grouse either okay you need some middle-aged forest some old forest all mixed in so that's your sweet spot when you're going grouse and woodcock hunting where well, you've got lots of diversity yeah because my assumption would have been you know if you had 
all forest of young aspen, maybe some tag alders, young birch. Like that's the sweet spot. But then you you talk about that if you have those Christmas tree size evergreens, that's pretty important in the mix sure. too, right? Yeah, and you need some older forest here in the lake states. Rough grouse get through the winter <coughs> by browsing on mature aspen buds. Mm-hmm. So you need some older mat aspen trees on that landscape as well. Right. And uh, this is the same in the Appalachians. We found that rough grouse nest in older forests. Mm-hmm. They don't nest in those places where we often find them in the fall, the thick tangles. <coughs> they nest out in these broader, more open, older forests. Really? So the mix right. is really important. Well, and I think sometimes you, you made a point, and it seems like, Bob, you're, you're and I, I like your perspective, but to you, where grouse habitat is where you're finding them. Right. I'm thinking in about the fall. from September the, to January. Right, right. right. Yeah. It's fall and winter. And, and quite honestly, it's that way with a whole lot of folks. And, sure. you know, that's our um, thing that we have to work diligently to make sure people understand is that really, you know, the key components of that could could easily be the production time you know and is if we can't produce them uh, we can't bring them through to that time for hunting season and so we often have to remind folks no that we got to get our production right that's terrific because it you know you equate it to pheasants right you think that the nesting cover for us is that those grassy habitats and then the brood cover is the kind of the pollinator Mm -hmm. and the legumes Mm -hmm. you know where they can find the insects and move through and then you think about winter cover is is a you know, I'm, I'm guilty of thinking, well, shoot, I care about when they're going to be in st- <laughs> sure. September 15th, sure. right? So so they're they're nesting in a little bit older forest, mm-hmm. right? Where's brood cover for rough grouse? Believe what? it or not, it, kind of the in-between. Okay. Those in-between forests. So um, if, if you look at uh, overwinter use where I was working, just mm-hmm. for an example, and just to throw back to, you know, the need for sound research. I lived with rough grouse for five years through every season, mm-hmm. seven days a week, you know, 365 days a year. So that's how you really figure out what the, what these animals need on the land. Cause you had them radio collared. Yeah. We were radio tagging birds and we were tracking them through nesting, seeing if nests hatch, uh, following them through, um, the brood rearing phase through the summer into the fall over winter. Huh. So that brings up that, a question that I've always struggled to find an answer to. Is it? <laughs> I hope I can do this for you, Bob. <laughs> what do you got, man? So as you know, for a long time, Wisconsin was one of the only states, at least, I'm sorry, the state that I knew of in the Great Lakes area that had it a January season, right? So um, and, and it was magical when you know, it was sort of a late snow and you could just keep hunting rough grouse later and later and later. But that rarely happens, right? In Wisconsin, the snow would fall and um, the grouse tend to just disappear when the snow is on the ground. I sort of find grouse when snow's on the ground, like underneath, like I said, those Christmas tree size balsam and fur. It seems like they like to have their feet sort of on bare ground when possible but then when it got deeper they were completely gone and i know they roost in in the snow to some extent but Mm -hmm. like there's like any place that i was finding them in december completely gone did they just disappear into the cedar swamps and there and i have you you can't get at them when there's heavy snow or what the heck happened to them yeah well they're clearly there somewhere they've just shifted and they the one thing that has been tied to 
population responses with grouse is winter snow depth. And they do spend a good bit of time. When you have a nice 18, 20-inch fluffy snow base, mm-hmm. they spend a lot of time snow roosted. They're in there. They're conserving energy. And they'll come out a lot of times, and I'm sure you've heard about this, in the evenings you'd see them up budding. Yeah right before they bomb back down into that snow bank and conserve energy. So mm-hmm. the other thing about not seeing them during that season is they're not moving if they don't have to. Mm. I mean, they're, it's a hairline a lot of times sure. that they're surviving by. They're going to eat, conserve energy, snow roost if they can. So when you're saying they're spending a lot of time, they're basically, you know, 23 hours out of the day, maybe one hour budding, and then they're back in? Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, getting in protective cover. So they cover. are underneath the snow. Yeah. The dogs can't or, smell. Yeah, or underneath those spruces, and they're not moving. And uh-huh. you know how important it is if sure. birds it's aren't moving. Snow yeah. yeah. They're, like, how many yards, maybe, in a day, like, come up out of that, go almost directly up, yeah. hit a couple of trees, and then they could be roosted back 10 feet from where they well, were. Well, and you, you see it where I was working in the, in the oak leaves. You'll have mm-hmm. these ground roosts, and there's – a week worth of droppings mm-hmm. there. Mm. Wow. So you know they were just coming out, going right back down to that same spot and tucking in. So I've I, I've heard that over many times about the the powdery deep snow is tremendous. Like a mm-hmm. heavy snowy winter for grouse is a benefit, right? Because they can pop down there and they're sort of hidden from predators for the most part. So talk to me about the opposite of that when there's maybe a little bit of snow or icy conditions or that you know that it's not super cold it's right right be hovering between freezing right so you get a lot of that just really tough stuff for a grouse to actually roost in what what happens to the birds in the, under those conditions well they're exposed so yeah. they can't get down in there and you'll have this glazing over and then you might have a real severe cold snap for a while so mm-hmm. now those birds can't get under the snow, which was two things for them, the protective piece, mm-hmm. but also the keeping warm. So yeah. the thermoregulation piece, it's like a little igloo for them. Hmm. So now they can't get under there, and so they're they're more exposed. Well, so so do, do they have the cognitive ability to see and like, well, I, I can't dive into that stuff? Or like, does a grouse ever hit something that's icy and snap their neck? <laughs> these sure. are the questions <laughs> no, I, I wonder I, I, about. I'm sure they do. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. But wow. uh, but at this by the same token, you, I don't think you have massive die-offs because you just got a, a glazing of ice in every grouse in northern Minnesota right, right, tried right. to roost in it. Right. They sh- they're exposed <laughs> and yeah. they're they're predated. That's the bigger issue. Yeah. yeah. And the energy consumption. If there isn't enough food or they don't have the habitat. So in Virginia, when we were working on when I was working on that project, we actually had I found two grouse that just died in their sleep like mm. and it, but it was it was hard weather it was cold there was some snow and they were in these like blowdown areas and they were underneath the oak leaves and the same thing mm-hmm. we'd we'd purposely go out and find those roosts so we'd go out at night and try to find out where they were uh, approximately and then the next morning we'd come out and flush them and like ben said you'd have a, a bunch of droppings in that one spot or like one log but there were two grouse that i fell that just looked like they died in their sleep wow. underneath there because they were exposed they you know they were in maybe marginal habitat they didn't have the food source or you know it was just a added stress so similar line of thinking but let's talk about woodcock you know the last two years in minnesota wisconsin michigan um tax day we've gotten just hammered 
with mm. snows. And I talked about, um, you know, I, I love as woodcock are migrating north to, you know, train new pups on uh, woodcock, right? Because they just are so marvelous for training a, a pointing dog. So I'm training birds, and then these tax season storms come through, and we're getting 12, 14 inches the last two years. <laughs> and woodcock are here. They're north. They've moved north. And I know some of them are surviving. I see them in these blizzards, but it's got to be devastating to woodcock. I mean, aren't it's just wiping the early migrators out, isn't it? Yeah, it's really tough on them. And you'll see them clinging to places like spring seeps where they can find a little bit of ground. But you, you get a snowstorm like that, it's really devastating. I, I heard a story uh, recently about the same thing happening in, in the eastern flyway mm-hmm. uh, coming up the east coast. And you now you do get these nor'easters that can dump 18 inches in uh, March or April. Hmm. And um, the gentleman was talking about all the woodcock that were killed on the highways. Hmm. Because that was the only open spaces they had to come up through. And many times they'll follow highway corridors like naturally they would have followed stream corridors. But it was the only places that were snow-free they had to sit down. And it seemed that just Woodcock were just getting obliterated on the highways. Hmm. So pardon my ignorance here, but they're they're migratory birds. So a snowstorm dumps, how many days does it take to go, wait a minute, let me turn around and go back? Or do they? Yeah, I think you do get a little bit of that jockeying back and forth, but think about a nor'easter that sure. slides in in Virginia and comes the whole way up through to Maine. You know, you just got yeah. major snow on hundreds and right. hundreds of miles, right. and they can't just hopscotch. It's, it's not a narrow vertical band or horizontal mm-hmm. band. It's so the, so the last episode of, of this podcast we released was uh, about monarch butterflies, right? And you guys probably know better than I do about the migration of a monarch, you know, going from uh, Duluth, Minnesota, all the way to the, you know, the forests of, of Mexico. Oyamel. I had trouble pronouncing, nice. pronouncing that in the last episode, but I got it. <laughs> um, and, and so the, the, the magic of the natural world is incredible. And you think of, a monarch can do that. Right, a woodcock sure. is even a little bit bigger, not by much, but it's it's bigger. But how how far does a woodcock travel on migration in a given day or night? The Rough Grouse Society, and American Woodcock Society, we've been funding uh, two major migration studies, and you know these guys can appreciate this. Andy talked about you know following this radio transmitter, <laughs> thinking it was a bear, and ends up being <laughs> one of Jim's turkeys with yeah. a similar frequency. Yep. You don't have to get out and do that business at all anymore. Mm. You can put these GPS collars or trackers on these birds and really follow them across the entire flyway, Mm. which is tremendous for the amount you can learn with that technology. So we've been supporting two studies, one in the central flyway wrapped up in 2016. One that's about to wrap up is the eastern migration study, and I'd encourage anybody that's interested to to Google that, and uh, the University of Maine has a great website. You can go and actually look at some of these trackers and where the birds are hmm. online. Um, where, where was so I going with that? So the, the question, question was, how far are they traveling? Oh, how far are they traveling? Yeah, yeah. That's right. So through the Eastern Migration Study, we found some birds in it one night will clear 400 miles. Holy cow. So it really, always back to habitat, it lends to the importance of this bird just flew 400 miles, and they do most of that at night. Hmm. That bird needs to sit down and refuel and have his butt protected somewhere. 
And so the stopover habitat becomes extremely important. So the next step for us from this study is going to be, okay, really need information, but how can we identify now critical conservation and habitat improvement areas, especially in that stopover Mm, habitat, keep those birds rolling on their route. So, you know, some flew 400 miles, you'd have other movements or 50 miles. And a lot of it depends, you know, they don't fly into a headwind. They'll sit down and wait till they've got a good northerly wind if they're heading south and, and use that wind to help push them down. They stack up in those nice little honey holes and oh, you find yeah. them. That's when you find incredible. them stacked. So it, it, I automatically think from a business perspective, you know, it's, it's natural if you're thinking about, you know, uh, Maine. Let's say where they woodcock and grouse live together, and you're like, okay, we're going to do habitat work that's going to benefit both of them. But the addition of kind of the American Woodcock Society integrated to your mission did the same thing that Quail Forever did for us, and that it made us truly a national organization, right? So you can, from north to south, east to west, you have species that make you relevant. But the complexity with a migratory species species for you um, is exponentially more difficult, I would assume, right? Because now all of a sudden, you, you know, you're not dealing with a bird that has a two to five mile life radius, right? Mm-hmm. You're dealing with a bird. You got to think about, okay, truly like waterfall, mm-hmm. right? Nesting grounds, Absolutely. stopovers, wintering area. Because how many flyways are there for woodcock? You talked about the east. There's, there's obviously the Great Lakes flyway. How far west do they go? Well, you know, our human minds, this is so true, and you realize this when you're engaged in wildlife research. Like, our human minds want, like, the simple answer. No doubt. You know. Evidenced right here. (laughs) What's going on with the population? What's that one thing? Well, it's seldom just one thing. We found with flyways, though we compartmentalize this for regulatory reasons and our our own um, satisfaction, Woodcock don't think of it that way. Mm -hmm. And we're finding birds that were... Eastern, I'm air quoting here, Eastern flyway birds that just all of a sudden hop over to the central. Hey, man, I'm going to go west for a couple hundred miles, right. and then I'm going to go to Louisiana. I started in Maine. Yeah. They're not supposed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and now we had birds on the central right. that will cruise over through Ohio, skip to Pennsylvania, and come down the east coast. Wow. Um, it's not a lot, but it mm. certainly happens. And when you think of the natural wonder of that mm. and the genetic mixing that occurs oh, with yeah. stuff like that mm-hmm. going on, it, it's super cool. There's a lot that we don't know yet about woodcock, uh, but the things we're learning from these migration studies, you know, and, and you can simplify it, Bob. So once we have this data from these birds flying up and down central and or eastern flyways, we're generating, we call them a heat map, like these are the hot spots where a lot of birds stop over. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to think of the enormity of the East Coast. We can kind of center our attention based on where the birds showed us they needed those critical habitats. Mm-hmm. And we can stay focused. It's the same thing we do with quail and the same thing you all do with pheasants. Yeah. All right. So this is a, another Bob St. Pierre question. Hopefully there's other people that want to know this. <laughs> um, Growing up in the UP, right, I love hunting woodcock. And it, this came from Tim Corrin, right, so another another fellow you guys all know. So in Delta County of the UP, in central UP, wo- tons of woodcock. So Lake Superior up north, right, and Lake Michigan underneath. And there's a theory, and I don't know if this is true, that woodcock sort of go around Lake Superior 
and they come into the UP. But like mm. where Tim lives, or I'm sorry, Tim's cabin, which is kind of the western UP, right. the Bruce's Crossing area, it's like there's no woodcock. <laughs> they, Not many. They, they, right. they don't go um, right over the <laughs> lake. So, and there's this like Bermuda Triangle for woodcock, right. according. Right. And, I, and I'm like, dude, it's got to be habitat related. It can't be that they're just avoiding, right? And he's a biologist, right. so he would know. Right. Is there a Bermuda Triangle where woodcock sort of wrap around uh, Lake Superior water um, areas? You got to think about how these birds are built, and they have to work smarter, not harder. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at clearing a huge body of water where you don't have the opportunity to stop if you get tired, I mean, there's an inherent risk in that right and we see it on the eastern flyway too where in southern new jersey there'll be these stage up areas where they have to build up energy wait for a northerly wind to cross over and get to the next land base wow so yeah it is a real thing and what this is this is really nerdy stuff but a lot a lot of (laughs) oh i took us there a long time uh, ago man keep going (laughs) a lot of work in into the migration corridors is following kind of theories of electronics and how electronics flow through the paths of least resistance right just makes sense you got this stubby little bird that needs to clear the entirety of the country Mm -hmm. in a few weeks time they got to fly the easiest routes Wow. So it has to do where there's opportunity to stop over. It has to do with prevailing winds and mm-hmm. landforms. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I just wrote down another note. We, we talked early with Jim about CRP, right? And you know how important CRP is from a grassland species that we care so deeply about. Is there an equivalent to CRP for rough grouse and woodcock habitat management? Well, over the past few years, we have really fought hard in the conservation title of the Farm Bill to ensure that there is some money for forest management in there as well. And so we've been able to do that through several programs. Um, Working Lands for Wildlife is one, Mm -hmm. uh, RCPP, and Equip Forestry. Mm. And so, yeah, together we've been working on those titles in the Farm Bill to make sure there is some money for landowners interested in doing forest management. It's, it's growing. It's a bit of a struggle for a, a federal agency that has, you know, really bread and butter has been agriculture. Right. And to apply the same concepts to forestry, there's some growing pains with that, but we're getting those funds, so that's positive. That's a great point that maybe not everybody knows that the U.S. Forest Service, Jim— is a department of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Yes. You, you think Department of Agriculture, well, NRCS, FSA, but Forest Service, where my brother works, <laughs> is part of the Absolutely. USDA. It's part of the Farm Bill, yeah. Title Seven, I think it is. And so, um, yeah, Ben's correct. I mean, we're really trying to, um, you know, in the, in the conservation of the Farm Bill, this, this 2018 Farm Bill, there's almost $30 billion in that for conservation. And that can be grassland, it can be wetland, it could be forest land. And so, you know, a a key point to the listeners is that if they've got a project or they want to do something or they want to do enhancements, whether it's no matter what type of habitat it is, um, we'll try to find you a cost share to do it or, you know, meet up with a partner with RGS or one of their biologists or one of our biologists or we're working together on the same property maybe um, to try to find those tools to get that done. And um, so, yeah, I think that there's a ton of opportunities in the and especially that early successional 
forest management, um, invasive species too. I mean, that's a big problem. You know, we're losing some of those opportunities even to be able to do management. Hmm. So. Right. So I could talk rough grouse, woodcock all day long, but I know everybody's got things to do on the show floor. <laughs> so I'm going to move to something of a lightning round here. We, it doesn't have hmm. to be super tight, but so uh, <clears throat> I, I want to move through a, a bunch of questions here. Uh, in our world, we talk a lot about roadside counts, you know, August brood counts, pheasants and quail. There's a lot of discussion from a rough grouse perspective about drumming counts that mm -hmm. occur in the springtime. And bird hunters sometimes use those as apples to apples, but they're really apples and oranges. They explain why they're two completely different uh uh, surveying methods, Ben. What are we comparing drumming counts Ro to? Roadside counts to drumming counts. Road so road side, roadside counts for, for pheasants? Would you pheasants or like quail? Like mail carrier route surveys? Yeah, so, so what I'm thinking about, like our, our counts, roadside counts, they occur in August, generally after the hatch, right? Correct. So you're counting broods. Drumming counts are adults in the springtime, uh, adult male rough grouse just staking out their territory. And I think it's important for hunters to know the difference between the two because, uh, you know, in a roadside count in August in, in Minnesota, well, it's not a perfect sampling, but at least there's a sort of measurement sure. of the brood out there, how effective the reproduction season has been. With a drumming count in the springtime in, in for forests with rough grouse, you know, I, I think about uh, a good friend, Ted Dick in Minnesota about four years ago, you know, got all these questions about how great the gruff, uh, rough grouse drumming counts were in Minnesota that year. And it didn't equate, it actually was completely different in the hunting season Come that year. Season. And, and Ted got just obliterated by media it's like no you guys don't understand what right. you're talking about that i mean they're completely yeah. they're measuring two completely different things it, it may be a function of the term you know you call them drumming counts and it leads one to believe that you're counting all the birds it's it's an index and it's really giving you a relative measure from year to year are there more or less and traditionally up here in the heartland of grouse range drumming counts have been a solid predictor of what's around in the fall population relatively as mm. an index um but with west nile potentially and some other things that are changing it seems like there's been some disruption in that over the summer period that's right. causing this you know mismatch between drumming counts and fall populations what i really like to see is states that have maybe they have some drumming count data but they also have some kind of brood survey data in pennsylvania where they've been doing a lot of the west nile work they also have summer sighting data that essentially foresters in the field fill out hmm. so you do get some of that recruitment or sure. or brood numbers from the summer and then they're also collecting information of flush rates from hunters in the fall so then you have this multi-dimensional picture of what's going on with populations if you're just depending on drumming <coughs> counts man it's tough and if you've ever tried to locate or think about how far away you can hear a drumming grouse especially with hearing from people that have toted shotguns their whole life right. yeah that's so what's that detection distance? <laughs> right. Drumming counts are fraught with, right. <laughs> with potential yeah. issues. But nonetheless, over the years, they have been a solid index. Yeah. But certainly not a count. So uh, anecdotal story, and, and 
the northeastern uh, quadrant of Minnesota up north. Uh, there's a this might be just a legend, but it's a great story that the gentleman that was the um, the drum and count guy um, it, it, he finally retired and um, new person took over and it, they realized that the old guy was actually deaf and, <laughs> and the, wow. the the drum and counts went through the roof, the roof. and yes. all of a sudden people are like well geez if i would have known this i'd be coming up this direction to go bird hunting well <laughs> so it's human error right well when i was in north carolina and you know you're you're getting whoever you can to help you yeah. with your research projects well my wife got recruited mm-hmm. a good deal now if you can imagine these things start a half hour before sunrise mm-hmm. so i'm taking my wife in the middle of the appalachians to some gated road dropping her off and saying you got to walk four miles and i'll pick you up at this point it'll be light soon mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you get to wonder yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there is some truth to that like um you know going out and trying to find woodcock or listen for them mm-hmm. and then you know when you lose your hearing you're gonna you can hear that low drum mm-hmm. but you can't hear the high so we had this was in new york in a, in a what's class. the right word paint paint yeah, yeah. so we were it was a it was an undergrad class at syracuse and we were going out and, and doing some of that and so some of the older folks were out there actually said that this is an issue hmm. older people lose that they can't hear that paint but they can hear the the you know so we're trying to do both rough grouse wow. and uh it's drumming not an exact science. No. And it is. It's an index. Yep. It's like men pointed out. Yeah. I, I like. guess the moral of the story on that one is, you know, take a grain of salt. Uh, take roadside counts, drumming count with a grain of salt. Just go. My goodness. Don't get so hungry. I mean, it's, there's valuable information there from a science perspective, but from a hunting perspective, kind of, you know, okay, it might be good, but, you know, just go. Figure yeah. Um, you brought up uh, West Nile virus. Um, it, it's become a hot topic in your world, I'm sure, in the last five years. What's the latest on what do we know about uh, West Nile and its impact on rough grouse? Well, right here where we're at in Minnesota, there's been a tri-state cooperative that will be going into its second or third year and that's between minnesota wisconsin and michigan all cooperating which is a great thing across the the lake mm-hmm. states on uh, collecting west nile data and of course hunters are integral in this because they're getting the samples in the fall um, so learning a lot right here in the lake states a lot of the information the best information we have now is coming from Pennsylvania because they've been working on the issue there for a long time Hmm. and Lisa Williams is out uh, meeting with a lot of other state agencies doing podcasts she did a great one with Ronnie Bame if if folks want to dig that up and really get the skinny on West Nile Lisa does a great job and where's Lisa work she's with the Pennsylvania Game Commission gotcha she's the grouse and woodcock biologist there um Long story short, what they are finding in Pennsylvania is you'll have some really bad West Nile years. This one mosquito that carries West Nile, there are years when it's really bad. Hmm. There are also years when it slacks off. Hmm. And what they're finding in Pennsylvania is that on the low West Nile years and good habitat, those populations are able to respond after getting whacked maybe the year before Hmm. with West Nile. But in poor habitat those populations tend to keep declining. So this isn't a far stretch, even with the simplicity of our human minds to say, well, duh, mm-hmm. if you're in good habitat, <laughs> you're going to be able to recover better sure. from a hit right. than if you're in poor habitat. Sure. So, you know, this really <coughs> comes back to the 60-year message mm. and the 
to me, the overriding message in wildlife conservation, it's still about providing good habitat. Imagine that. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's good news, too. Yeah. Right? It is. Because we can control that. Right. That's right. It is. Right. But I, I think you hit on something that in those poor habitat areas, they can blink, you know, think of it as a light bright. You know, you get all the lights on potentially when we start and things get pulled out. When, when habitat is poor you might have a little local area, a little little meta population, if you will, that the light doesn't come back on. Well, this is why we really need to, to pay attention to these declines and think about rough grouse as a really good bellwether yeah. and indicator because they're not migratory. Mm-hmm. So they're showing you what's happening right there. Right. Woodcock are really fun. I always called them my instant gratification species when I was working in public lands management because you'd create some habitat. And they'd occupy it pretty quickly because they're, they're traveling, you know, sure. they're looking from above. Oh, oh yeah. there's good habitat. I'll reoccupy it. When you have roughed grouse blink out across an area, it's not going to be repopulated as easily huh. because they're not migratory. Uh, West Nile been on the landscape for a long time, or is it genuine, genuinely kind of a newer development for rough grouse? It's pretty new. I think it was confirmed uh, on the East Coast in 2000 or 2001. And uh, seriously, I encourage everybody that's interested to check out the Hunting Dog podcast okay. issue with Lisa Williams. Okay. Uh, it's a great discussion and will answer a lot of questions. But yeah, around 2001, and it really hit crow and jay populations mm-hmm. right. at that time. And people started saying, oh, I wonder what other birds this really right. impacts. All right. I'm really doing well on Was lightning, that lightning? question. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, super fast. Talk about geographically the question. This is the hot one. This is the most controversial one. Oh boy. Mm. Rough grouse or partridge? <laughs> What's the right oh, term? Yes. You know, as a youper, my grandpa called them pats. Yeah. My mm-hmm. dad calls them partridge. Nobody ever called them rough grouse. Geographic, uh, that's true of northern Minnesota. They call them partridge. Northern Wisconsin, partridge. Where uh, Appalachia, what they call them? Uh, they were just grouse. Yeah, grouse. Okay. Yeah. What uh, about, like, the North Atlantic? Maine? Yeah, yeah, you start getting into some partridge yeah. up there and pats, which is interesting. You wonder how culturally that was kind of carbon copied from the northern great lakes over to new england but i, I never heard partridge at all through the oh. appalachians or in my home state of really? pennsylvania where rough grouse is yeah. a state bird in new york in the upper new york my grandfather called them and great grandfather called them pats yeah uh, according to my uncle yeah telling me those, those gardner stories. bump the, the yes uh, you know one of the first researchers that did work in the 1940s yeah, I quoted Shakespeare, a rose by any other name smells as sweet. So it doesn't matter what you call them. <laughs> They're still yeah. awesome. What do they call them in Canada? Any idea? I don't even, I'm not sure. Okay. Groose. 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 <laughs> I'm going to, to, to walk about yeah, for Groose. The, the, the guy that was working on the, the P, his PhD at Virginia Tech was from Newfoundland. So he always called them Groose. Yeah. Derek yeah. Whitaker. <laughs> so, and you know, as... You talk to Canadians about grouse, those things are stupid, (laughs) right? They never fly. You just ground pound them. We're not even talking about the same bird. Is it all about pressure? I think it is. It's going to be interesting to watch. I made a prediction yesterday um, with Western populations, and you hear the same thing. We're elk hunting, and we shoot them with a slingshot, you know, or people are – their tendency to fly into trees and sit. I, it doesn't take many generations if people are pursuing them with bird dogs for them to 
to adapt to that and start behaving like the grouse we know in the lake states and the eats that have been hunted hard for a long time. Yeah. So yeah. I don't it's an adaptable species. They're not going to, under pressure, stay dumb, so to speak, for long. <laughs> they're a survivor. Yeah, they're, They'll figure it out. They are not dumb anywhere that I've hunted <laughs> them. <laughs> and if you know some dumb ones, you can email me at bobass at pheasantsforever.org. Um, all right. I, I honestly could keep talking about this stuff for, for hours. Um, tell folks how to get involved with RGS, American Woods, Woodcock Society. What? What uh, what's your call to action? What do you want folks to do? Well, we'd love to have folks following us on Instagram and on social media. So check us out there. Anybody can follow me and see what I'm into uh, at Ben Jones underscore Forest Wildlife. But uh, check out the website, click the join button, and get you a membership. Yeah. That's that's the way to do it. That's where it starts. If if I could ask anything of our listeners, it'd be terrific. As we talked about the public lands pavilion here, um, you know, pheasants forever membership, a quail forever membership, backcountry hunters and anglers, and the rough grouse society. If you could do the grand slam for us, folks, <laughs> um, you know, we are all in this together. And, uh, you know, this is a, a request for you guys to, and gals to all be in this together with us, whether you're running a setter, a short hair, a lab, to, you know, we don't care. Just be members because it's absolutely making a difference. Well, it's it's we absolutely depend on it. And, you know, for your thirty five dollar membership whether it's QFPF, BHA, you're joining this larger network. So as an individual hunter out there, um, as a single voice, you're more limited, honestly, in what you can do. But if you're part of one of these networks, you know, we've got the state DNRs on speed dial. We're having coordination meetings. We're laying out projects, securing hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. So that's the point of membership, that you're joining that network, that conduit, to be able to get the habitat work done. Right on. Yep. Andy, any final thoughts or, or questions? That I, I'm going to go around the room. We'll start with Andy, Jim, and, and then Ben. Any final thoughts or things that perhaps I missed that you wanted to bring up? Too? No, no this, is, this has just been great. It's kind of a um, culmination of a whole lot of years yeah, getting to this point. But um, it's great to kind of be back connected with Ben. He and I have talked. You know, we talk a lot on the phone. But really, we, we've been 10 years or so seeing each other face-to-face until a couple months ago. So, um, you know, just – kind of back where we started the early conversation is neat to see how how life has brought us yeah. all the way around and back again and uh, looking forward to the the next uh, 20 years of it <laughs> that's been, yeah. it's been 20 years it's been 20 years <laughs> Jim, oh, it's just, it is the same way it's it's great um you know worked with ben um you know when when he was over in pennsylvania as well and and we've always kept in touch and andy too and and we were talking um maybe too late in the evening one night here recently that Never. we need to start hunting again too. We do. We need to start going out and, and yep. enjoying that and getting together. And we've all got young families and, you know, we'll start doing that again. Any closing thoughts, Ben, or anything I missed that you want out there about Rough Grass Society? Well, yeah, you know, the, the membership part is key, but, you know, I think the, this has been a fun podcast to do and I hope it helps people realize a bit of the inner workings that are going on Mm -hmm. here. you got these people that are passionate, have gotten the education, have connections with each other across organizations. And by, you know, that is this Habitat Network that we're talking about. And that in joining, this is kind of what you two are becoming a part of. Right on. 
it's really cool. There's right. not, there's nothing I would rather be doing with my life right now. Yeah. Well, congratulations on what, what I can only assume is your dream job. Uh, you've been in it for going on two years now, right? It'll be two years in June. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for taking time to uh, do this podcast. Most importantly, thanks for signing up to be a partner on the public lands pavilion out here. I hope folks uh, really have a good time with this. Oh, man, having a blast. And this is a big day. We're Saturday morning. This place is going to be packed today, so yeah, looking no, forward to it. No doubt. And, folks, um, you know, if you're, you know, maybe maybe you're a Quail Forever member that uh, has never chased rough grouse in uh, Appalachia or North Atlantic, Great Lakes, uh, I would I would encourage you to go grouse or woodcock hunting. It's amazing how much you'll learn about quail or pheasant hunting, um, and your dog will learn by going and chasing something different. It, right. it opens up your mind to, to different things that you would never have expected, and it'll make you a better all-around dog owner and all-around bird hunter. Uh, all right, we got to go to Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode, this rough grouse and woodcock-themed episode of On the Wing Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. I am Bob St. Pierre, leaving you with uh, one final thought. Always follow the dog. Something good will rise. All right, folks. Talk to you later.